Welcome to Adapt Nation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today, Swedish A&E physician, Dr. Sebastian Rushworth, is on the mics to help clear up all the Chinese whispers, claims, and debates regarding Sweden's COVID response and their lifestyle, their society, and the country. This episode needed to happen. The incessant flawed claims being banded about online about Sweden is just insane. And we need to put a stop to it with indisputable facts from a qualified Swede. You'll hear all the Swedish insight you need regarding their culture, lifestyle, and their population density as it relates to the COVID-19 response, all in one place and all from the horse's mouth. Without question, this episode is one of the best resources you will find online regarding the realities of Sweden. And after this one and a half hour podcast interview, we will once and for all put all this emotional debate about Sweden to rest. You'll hear more about Sebastian in just a moment. But let me just say this. He's been speaking up mostly to help answer the overwhelming foreign interest on the realities of Swedish response to COVID, what it was like in the Swedish hospitals during the peak period, and what has been their way of life during and after the epidemic. He's been featured a couple of times on Dr. Malcolm Kendrick's clinical blog. He's been on the Ivor Cummins Fats Emperor podcast. He's been on other global podcasts and has also written extensively on his blog. We covered so much. We threw the kitchen sink at this. You'll absolutely love this insight, I'm sure. And after hearing this, you will be able to hold your own on Swedish COVID debate with confidence. Oh, and just one other thing. Sebastian asked me to make one correction up front. He mentioned double counting of cases based on retesting of a single individual on the show. As he cannot back that up with evidence, he asked that we caveat this as speculation as it may no longer be true. As always, you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, then please help others find our show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging or sharing this Adaptation episode on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, then do check out our Be Your Best self-optimization journey an online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. Okay, without further delay, let's get clued up on all things Sweden and COVID with the brilliant Dr. Sebastian Rushworth. Hey, Sebastian, I am so glad to be speaking with you, man. Welcome on the show. Thank you. It is, um, it is an interesting time, and I didn't think I'd be so keenly interested in your country <laughs> than I am in this year. So um, you will be the voice of reason, I am sure. <laughs> and um, I, wanted, I wanted to say out, out of the gate, a sincere thank you for making the time with us today. And here's, no problem. Here's, here's the kind of the kind of key, the, the the setup here. 
Um, Sweden, every time Sweden is mentioned in England, emotions flare up. I mean, it's causing painful cognitive dissonance here, meaning people want to dismiss the comparison between England and Sweden. They want to smear their approach at every opportunity. And they seem keen to see Sweden's COVID stats go up. And it's, um, it's, I'm tr- it's troubling me, to say the least. We have a serious problem of Chinese whispers here, and hopefully we can clear some of that up. See that there's a strong desire from those that really want to believe that the UK are doing the right thing to dismiss Sweden. They want to see that all the destruction and sacrifice that we have been making this year in this country has been worth it. And to give them comfort that their compliance was placed that they look to see how they can dismiss uh, Sweden's very different approach to pretty much the whole world. So then I think we we need to look at the fact that there are other people that see things differently, like myself and many others, and they see Sweden as a bit of a pin-up, Sebastian. They see them as how things should have been. Um, <laughs> there's almost a sense of strong patriotism to your country that most people have never visited. Uh, And people genuinely want to understand what's going on there and want their lives to be different and want a little bit of what Sweden have. So if you're up for it, I would love for us to, you know, dig into, you know, Sweden's culture, geography, behaviours, healthcare, etc. Because there are many experts or claimed experts that seem to know a hell of a lot about all of those things. Yet, of course, have never been there. Um, And the last thing I'll mention, just so we can kind of put a a direction of travel for this conversation, Sebastian, is that there are many pushbacks to the Swedish model when when comparisons are made in England. And I think Sweden is a strong A-B test because you do things so, so differently with similarities, of course, but fundamentally different ethos. But some of the pushbacks, Sebastian, is... Their population density is so low that it's completely irrelevant. They'll say that there are there's loads of space. They have big homes. They have second homes. Uh, <laughs> their towns are structured completely differently to England. Uh, they'll go on and say that they are very compliant. They're very obedient. And they're educated people. And as a result, they do as they're told. And they lock themselves down regardless. They also say that there's uh, that they lost loads of people. They have nothing to be proud of. Look at their deaths per million and compare really to New Zealand and Southeast Asia. If you want to have a comparison, Sweden is irrelevant. And last two things they'll say, they say they perform terribly in comparison to their Nordic neighbors. And Anders is panicked with the rising cases and deaths and ICU admittance is going to increase. And word on the street is that Anders is going to lock them all down. I mean, that's just some of the stuff that we hear on a constant perpetual basis here. So if you're up for it, Sebastian, I know that was a long preamble without letting my guests speak, but I just wanted to set the scene. Hopefully you as a Swedish A&E physician and someone who lives in uh, Stockholm can give us some real insight and clarify some of those positions. Are you up for that? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Good. I've thrown so much at the wall already. Let's see what sticks. So um, before we get into any of that, Sebastian, why don't I give you the mic for a moment or so so you can tell us a little bit about uh, your education, training, line of work, and what makes you qualified to speak to this situation? Um, 
Well, so I'm a, a junior doctor. I graduated from uh, medical school in January of this year. And uh, immediately after graduating, I started working in, in the emergency room of one of the hospitals here in Stockholm and uh, had uh, about uh, two normal months uh, where I was treating, treating well, mostly surgical patients, uh, people with appendicitis, kidney stones, uh, nosebleeds, uh, uh, bowel obstructions, those types of things. And then, um, uh, and for, I guess from February, COVID started to enter my consciousness as something that was uh, happening uh, in, in China and then uh, later on in South Korea and Italy. Um, but I wasn't really giving it much thought until, uh, I guess, early March when, when Sweden started to have it, its first couple of cases. And, uh, but I, I think the general thinking was that uh, this wasn't going to be very big. Uh, these were a few individual cases. They were going to be contained. Uh, uh, there's gonna, there was going to be tracking and tracing and, and, uh, uh, but, uh, over a very short period of time, uh, suddenly things started exploding and, um, uh, I work in a, in a hospital in a, a wealthy northern suburb of uh, Stockholm, and uh, many of the people who live in this suburb go to Italy for their spring break to go skiing. And, uh, and uh, a lot of those people, I think, came back with COVID. So literally from one day to the next, uh, uh, it became clear that the infection was exploding in Stockholm and uh, and uh, suddenly I was uh, in a situation where m most of the patients I was treating were COVID patients. Uh, and and it really happened very suddenly. There was a, a very dramatic rise in cases over the course of about a month uh, from March to April where I was treating a lot of COVID patients on a daily basis and, and, and really it felt like everyone coming to the, the hospital was a COVID patient because people who came in with, with stomach pain or diarrhea who didn't have any respiratory s symptoms, if we tested them, they, they were positive for COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but then after, after a month, things started to calm down. I, things started to kind of peter off and and uh, and and they just kept dropping the numbers of patients i was seeing in in the emergency room just kept dropping and dropping for for months and um and uh, i noticed that when i was looking at the official statistics that the numbers were the same uh, and and uh, and and that really got me to start thinking that uh, that uh, the infection was was largely over in Sweden, um, and and it it was kind of uh, the numbers of deaths and hospitalizations just kept dropping and dropping until uh, I guess September they reached their nadir, and then now in in the last month or so there's been a slight uptick in in, uh, in hospitalizations and deaths. So I, I mean that's a very quick recap of what's happened in Sweden. Yeah, thank you. And um, 
what a baptism of fire, right? For a, <laughs> <laughs> a uh, starting off A and E physician. So, in mm. in that role, you typically would see any kind of acute general um, situation, or was you are you a specialist in some regard within the A and E department? Uh, no, but uh, I'm I'm working in mainly in a in a kind of a surgical section. So most of the patients I'm seeing are are surgical patients. Okay, okay. So you weren't necessarily seeing the, uh, other uh, non-surgical patients or patients that haven't got to the the, the point of need in surgery. Well, I, I kind of I see everyone who comes in with something that could potentially be surgical, and uh, and that mainly means people with. Uh, stomach pain basically <laughs> okay okay uh, and what what was the the public mood uh, and really the support from the public so if we flash back to mid-march because that really is when you know the world lit on fire in regards mm. to you know the response the fast response and what seemed to be unanimous uh, unanimously across the country um lockdowns of some some sort so Talk me through how the country was responding and the messages that you were receiving in March. I know as an A&E physician, you may have heard things slightly differently and you've got uh, an education to be able to parse this in a different way, but what was the public hearing? Um, well, so I think uh, Sweden, kind of like England also had at the beginning, uh, the focus, I mean, I think the Swedish Public Health Authority uh, figured that th this wasn't going to be a disease that was going to be contained, that uh, it was going to spread until it reached uh, a point where people have, uh, where, where the infection reaches herd immunity one way or another. And so uh, the focus at the beginning was really on flattening the curve, um, mainly for the sake of the healthcare system to prevent the healthcare system from being overwhelmed um so um but uh, and, and i think that's largely what the british government was communicating in the beginning too before they yeah decided to change strategy um and um so but uh, i think sweden is uh, slightly different from a lot of other countries in that um, uh, in that people have a lot of uh, strong uh, constitutional protections and that really meant that even if the the Swedish state had wanted to do a hard lockdown they they couldn't because uh, the Swedish constitution really stops that so um, uh, so I don't know whether they wanted to do that and didn't do that or whether they felt that it wasn't the right thing to do. Um, but uh, so all the measures implemented in Sweden or almost all of them were voluntary. People were recommended to work from home if they could to um, avoid public transport if uh, possible. People over the age of 70 and who were members of uh, risk groups were recommended to uh, avoid social contacts uh, as far as possible. Um, uh, it, it was really a focus on, on voluntary restrictions to uh, slow the spread of the disease for, for the purpose of uh, uh, preventing the healthcare system becoming overwhelmed. 
there were a few forcible restrictions. There was a restriction on uh, uh, public gatherings. Uh, people weren't allowed to gather in groups of more than 50. Um, um, this, and um, restaurants were required to um, make sure that guests could keep at least uh, one meter distance. And and uh, I think a few restaurants and bars were closed down because they weren't weren't uh, doing that. But um, other than that, restrictions have really been voluntary. And I think that's the main difference if you compare with other countries. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Was the you say it was voluntary? One, what was um, what were people's? What was the general sentiment of the people? Was it um, was there a willingness to conform? Was there a an, an acceptance that this was both a problem and the asks of the people were fair and sensible? I know you can only speak for yourself and the cohort of people that you connect with, mm. but generally speaking, did you what were the um, asks adhered to, and were people willing to support those asks and felt that they were appropriate? My feeling is that uh, at the beginning, in in March and in April, people were frightened of the virus and. Uh, and uh, people were largely conforming to their recommendations. Um, but uh, like I said, we ha we peaked, the disease peaked in Sweden in April. And after that, it started dropping and dropping. And I think uh, uh, people have uh, gradually become more and more relaxed when they've seen that, that uh, the disease is declining and they've seen that it doesn't seem to be a very serious disease. Most people, do not get very sick from it. Uh, so I think um, there was a lot of compliance uh, at the beginning, and then it's kind of gradually eroded as the months have gone by and, and the death, deaths have just come down and down and then have stayed at a very low level for months on end. And that, uh, is, mm. is that a, a shift in compliance and attitude of the people, or has there been a, a shift in uh, or a loosening of the recommendations from Anders or, or others in the, your public health? It's it's a bit of both. I think people were becoming very relaxed and starting to live normally before the official recommendations changed. So there have been relaxations happening in recent weeks. And uh, so uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, visitors were prohibited from visiting um, uh, nursing homes, homes. Yeah. but uh, in the last, uh, but that uh, prohibition was lifted about a month ago and uh, a week or so ago, the, the recommendation that people in the 70 plus age group uh, uh, avoid social contact, that recommendation was lifted, like I said, a week ago. So there's kind of been a relaxing of the recommendations over the last month or so, but I think people uh stopped stopped following the recommendations before they were formally relaxed yeah but uh, that, at least that's what we see from um uh lots of social media sharing usually by people that don't live in sweden but just to demonstrate that things seem to be normalizing again um would you say that there were 
mistakes made, right? This isn't about um, judging because mm. I think that the world was reacting in real time and every government had many difficult situations to contend mm. with as to what is the right response. But in hindsight, looking mm. back on how this was managed in Sweden between, you know, the schools, the universities, the, you know, the public services, the restaurants and so forth, transport, do you think if you could replay March, April, that Anders or perhaps even yourself would make different decisions? Uh, well, so the Swedish government has uh, gone out and said that uh, they uh, didn't take the disease seriously enough in the beginning in terms of protecting um, frail elderly people, people living in nursing homes. And, and I think that's probably fair. Um, it, it, uh, it the the restrictions on visits to nursing homes and uh, the the use of uh, face masks by staff in nursing homes those things came pretty late and and uh, i think it in hindsight bigger efforts should have been made to protect frail older people at an earlier point in the pandemic um but uh, i also think that at at the point where uh, the government uh, and the public health authority really realized that this uh, this was potentially a serious disease for frail older people. Um, we were in March and uh, uh, a lot of those people had already been infected. So, I mean, there have been analyses done that uh, show that even if uh, more serious lockdowns had, had been implemented at that point, it wouldn't actually have... Uh, had any real effect on the the number who died and I, I think England is a or the UK is really a case in point mm -hmm. where where uh, you did go into kind of a severe lockdown but you did it at uh, a point where the disease was already so widespread in your population that uh, that uh, it, it didn't actually have any any meaningful impact on the number of deaths. Yeah Sunitra Gupta and many others actually have modeled um, or modelled early in March with that input, the input being this isn't novel in as much that one, uh, we probably have some cross-reactive immunity, but most importantly, um, the modelling was accepting that it had already um, worked its way through the population rapidly and therefore um, the infections are effectively ine inevitable and mm. um, trying to put in interventions from that point in her eyes seemed um, futile and I think she made those recommendations but of course uh, we did not listen but enough about enough about England let's con continue down this track so thank you for that um, maybe one, one last point around this March April uh, period of time um, as a new A&E physician seeing cases seeing cases go up and then seeing obviously patients walking through the door at increasing frequency were you worried? Were you scared? Whether it be for yourself, for your family, um, for maybe the inundation of the public health service? Like, what? Where was your head at early on, and has it shifted? Um, well, I wasn't worried for myself personally because, uh, even I mean, even the early data showed that this was not a dangerous disease for young, healthy people. Um, uh, my, I mean, my 
family, my my mother, my parents-in-law, they they chose to follow the the recommendations to isolate uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, which I thought was uh, perfectly sensible because at that point we didn't we didn't really know how serious it was, uh, especially for older people, and uh, and the the number of deaths and hospitalizations was was uh, exploding i mean it was increasing exponentially throughout throughout march so um uh, at that point uh, and since it since the curve hadn't turned it, it wasn't obvious how 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 bad things were going to get so yeah. i i thought uh, i definitely thought there was a possibility that the healthcare system was going to be overwhelmed and uh, and uh, the swedish government opened field hospitals uh just for the purpose of taking care of of covid patients but um uh but then the things turned in mid april already and uh uh so i mean uh, and those field hospitals ended up not even being used they never saw a single patient so uh, i mean there was concern that uh, that we were going to be overwhelmed but we never actually were uh um is, I feel like you asked something more that I haven't actually answered. No, no, that was perfect. I, it was just a sense of where, where your head was at then because I, mm. I, I, I get a different tone from you now, but wanting to know if that was a, an evolving thought process, an evolving mm. emotion. And it sounds like maybe it was, but you had already been centered on the fact that uh, at least you yourself shouldn't be fearful. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that, I think that's pretty pretty accurate. Okay. Now, I, I do obviously want to talk about loads more in relation to this, but I, I wanted us to kind of maybe step away from COVID for a second. It is very relevant, but I want to talk a bit about Sweden 101 stuff, right? Because as I say, there are there is so much heated emotional debate right now around Sweden. Loads of people are like, oh, stop talking about Sweden already. They're completely irrelevant. Stop, stop. You know, it's, it's nonsense. You're just doing it just to you know, because you're an anti-whatever uh, over here in this country. And then, again, the excuses as to why Sweden are irrelevant to the UK start coming through. So to help understand the pertinence or the, the relevance of those statements, I wanted to, in a kind of quick-fire um, way, just walk through a few of the things that I've heard that potentially describe your culture and lifestyle and you can tell me whether it's true or not and elaborate as you see fit is that okay absolutely okay so the first seems to be you guys are so obedient and so compliant and you listen to everything that's been told of you and um yeah is is would you say that generally is a true statement that you believe you live in a country which is um incredibly obedient and can be trusted to make the right decisions there's no no one rogue there's no youngsters that want to do their own thing there's no no one who just wants to go and party irrespective that people want to listen and will listen to any, anything and everything that being, they're being told in sweden i i think that is both true and not true i mean uh, surveys generally show that swede swedes have more trust in their government and in the state than uh, people in most countries do, but at the same time, I mean, Sweden is a very individualistic culture. Uh, I think people are more, uh, I guess there's this view since Sweden has this kind of social democratic socialist history that it's a very collectivist 
culture, but it really isn't. Swedes are are independent, and I think uh, Swedes uh, make make up their own minds about things. And if they don't agree with the government, they're not just gonna go along. So in that sense, I think that description doesn't fit reality. And from the, you know the young population, you know the the narrative over here in the UK is that we have a lot of stupid people. I think that's grossly unfair and completely mischaracterized. But the general tone when we talk about this stuff is we have lots of stupid people that can't be trusted to make the right decision, and we also have lots of people in different levels of social economic status as well as age groups and those things that really create a different result in different parts of the country. You'll get people that just go, you know, fuck it to this and go and want to have their life anyway. They want to still go out and party. They want to, you know, go out, go rogue, like not listen purposely, just be rebellious. Um, I think that's a mischaracterization of our country. But do you have, you know, know, your young population, would you say they're they're generally obedient or are they young? Are they young and just want to have, have their life and as a result may not listen to all these recommendations? Um, well, <laughs> I'm not that young personally. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, I, I'm kind of past the going out and partying phase of my life. But uh, uh, I, my impression, just from what I see, like traveling in public transport and uh, being in the city, is that that uh, throughout the pandemic, young people have been getting on with their lives more or less as normal. Okay. All right. No, well said. No further elaboration needed. Talk to me about being so geographically dispersed, having second homes, having big distance between homes, and generally this 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 concept of low population density. I'm not I'm not suggesting you guys don't have low population density in comparison mm-hmm. to the UK because there are large swaths of your country where it absolutely is true, but you you know you live in Stockholm in the county of Stockholm. Um, do you agree that you should uh, any comparison to Sweden and their approach should be dismissed out of the gate because your population density and the way in which you live and the de- geographical disbursement is so wildly different to another country such as the UK? Uh, no, I think that's a pretty silly thing to say. I mean. Uh, Sweden is a big country geographically, especially in relation to its population, but most of Sweden is forest. I mean, and it's not like people are evenly spread out throughout the the geographical area of Sweden. Most Swedes live in uh, live uh, in towns and cities. Uh, um, more than 20% of Sweden's population lives in Stockholm. Um, so, I mean, uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but uh, I, I mean, I don't uh, feel like uh, we are more spread out in 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 Stockholm than than you are than you would be in another city in Europe. Is Stockholm an, an anomaly within Sweden, or are there several, you know, towns where you know people generally are, are, are packed relatively close together? For you know, for the convenience of well, managing a town and obviously community, etc. Yeah. Well, most people in Sweden live in a kind of a metropolitan area. There, there aren't uh, the proportion of the population that's living out in the countryside is small. I mean, Sweden is a 
it, it, it's the most people are urban in terms of how they live. Mm-hmm. And um, as to the second home thing, I, most people don't have second homes. And I don't think the average Swedish home is bigger than the average British home. I think they're probably pretty comparable. Thank you. I don't know where that one came from, by the way, but it, I've been hit with it a few times recently. So I thought we'd, we'd get that clarified. Um, you guys apparently are really antisocial. So this is just like, this was a walk in the park. How do you, how do you feel about that statement? Um, well, I think that's uh, pretty silly too. Uh, and, and so I've kind of heard this thing, but Swedes naturally want to keep uh, two meters apart from each other. And I mean, yeah. That it's not true. Swedes, I guess we don't kiss each other on the cheeks like people in Southern Europe do, but uh, Swedes are do a lot of hugging. So, I mean, we definitely get physically close to each other when we're interacting socially. Mm, okay. And what about nightlife? Um, part, you know, we, we've got curfews in the UK, and I think there are curfews across much of Europe now. This idea that there's when when the clock strikes X, whether it's ten o'clock or something later, you know, we, we should ab- abandon whatever we're doing and go back home immediately. Um, part of the narrative against or the rhetoric against Sweden is that you guys naturally don't really go out much, and you're all tucked in bed by eight o'clock. Um, do you guys have a nightlife? you know, restaurants, bars, clubs, bars, that kind of thing? Of course. And and they've stayed open throughout the pandemic. Even things like clubs, like, you know, dancing clubs? Yeah. 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 So there, there was uh, recently a restriction placed on nightclubs that they can't uh, uh, have more than uh, 50 people in the club at the same time. But, I mean, they're still open and, and people still go to them. So clubs are open, but you can't have more than 50. So that makes running a club quite difficult, but nonetheless, they still manage to keep their, their lights mm. on and their, their music playing. Yeah. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, um, anything else? Um, da, da, da. You guys are super intelligent, uh, and as a result, you can listen and, and, and follow orders better than us uh, simpletons in the UK. D- do you, now I know that it's a subjective question because you live in the country but do you have a sense of pride within sweden that you guys have a higher intelligence than you know the rest of europe no i i mean well I, that's also just uh, silly i think the average swede is probably about as intelligent as the average english person or average french person or average spanish person yes. there's no reason to think there would be any difference no there isn't there isn't thank you um Age structure. Um, I've looked at the statistics. Maybe you have too. The, honestly, I can answer this question myself, but I don't see a significantly different age structure to Sweden as the UK. I assume there would be. I had a look at it. It really is pretty much identical in terms of you know the population of people in certain age groups. That said, you 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 lost a lot of people who were old like us, um, but um, the age groups are actually higher than ours. Uh, you lost a lot of people over 80 and then 85. Um, do you want to talk to the age structure at all? Do, do you see it to be any different in Sweden in comparison to, say, the UK or other, other places? Um, well, I, I don't have the numbers in my head, so but uh, I, I would assume it's largely similar as to the the large number of uh, of uh, 
deaths among old people in Sweden, I mean, I think it's become pretty clear that uh, if you look at uh, the statistic, well, if you look at the overall mortality statistics, there is really no no excess mortality in Sweden. It's it's very much in line with with the average for the last five years or so. Um, there was a small uh, increase in mortality for about two months in in March and April, but after that, the the numbers really went back back to what they are normally. And uh, one thing that is interesting, if you look at the statistics for recent years, is that in 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 2019 there was an unusually low number of people who died in Sweden, six yeah. percent less than than the average for the last five years, and 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 that means that there was an unusually large number of people of frail older people at the beginning of 2020. So I, I think that is probably the main explanation for why Sweden seen uh, more deaths than than its than its Scandinavian neighbors. That there was an unusually large number of very frail elderly people, and. Um, when when the Swedish public health authority and and the Swedish counties which run the healthcare system have been going through the the statistics on COVID deaths, only maybe fifteen uh, percent or so actually had the had the COVID as the main cause of death. I mean, most of these people were very old, very frail, and um, and and would uh, most likely have been dead by now anyway, even without COVID. So I, I mean, I think 2020 was always uh, going to have an an excess number of frail old people dying, just because there was an unusually low number of frail old people dying in Sweden in 2019. Yes, yeah, I, I think that um, analogy of you know kindling or dry tinder. Uh, makes a lot of sense and I know there have been papers speaking specifically about Sweden but I think we see that across much of Europe actually there we did see uh, a general um, softer winter across Europe and I think that's definitely been a, a catalyst for what we saw in March April so thank you for sharing that um, a couple of last questions on the 101 of Sweden before we get back to some of the, the nitty-gritty um, health status metabolic syndrome, general disease of, of modernity. Would you say that the Swedish public, again, somewhat contextual unless you've done the analysis yourself, but do you see diabetes, cancers? Uh, do you see, you know, just disease of modernity, um, hypertension, heart disease, those kind of things? Or do you somehow get a sense that Swedes are healthier than you know, their peers across Europe? Well, absolutely. I see those things every day because those are the people who come to the emergency room. The, um, but my, I mean, I don't have the numbers in my head again, but my feeling is that Swedes in general are less overweight than people in the UK. They're definitely less overweight than people in the US. Um, and uh, we know now very very clearly that uh, one of the main risk factors for having severe COVID and dying of COVID is obesity. So, um, and that seems to be the the main thing explaining the the difference in deaths seen in different countries. If you look at Asian countries, if you look at countries like 
Japan, which also did not do a very severe lockdown. They have very low numbers of deaths. Uh, and, and I think that probably is a big part of of the explanation that there are very few obese people. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. And it's, at least it's a, an expression of not look, not caring for yourself, right? You probably have some form of dysregulation metabolically leading to other conditions. I think that's um, very astute. Um, okay, uh, last two. Um, th- th- this gets a bit conspiratorial. So uh, excuse me for these next two questions. But some people say, well, the reason why everyone was so compliant and got along with what was being asked of them is because you guys are almost cashless already uh, as a cashless society. And we're definitely getting a theme that we're kind of moving away from, you know, um, physical cash moving to digital. And also that you guys have microchipping parties and like to, you know, you're on board with being effectively tagged and bagged and uh, surveyed through through chipping. So can maybe you speak to whether you think that's um, a correct characterization of Sweden? Well, it's correct that Sweden is a cashless society. I mean, I, I pay for everything with my card. I haven't used physical cash in years. <laughs> but whether that has anything to do with the spread of COVID, I, I don't see. I don't see the connection. I mean, COVID is a, a respiratory virus. It spreads through droplets and yes. through through aerosolization. It's it's not a virus that uh, you're generally spreading with cash i mean if if uh, if you have covid and uh, and uh, you touch uh, a 10 pound note and then you give it to me the odds of me becoming infected by that are i mean probably infinitesimal i don't know if there's any scientific evidence to support to support that that's a, a meaningful method for spreading the infection yeah and what about this microchipping thing i mean have you heard of that is that a big deal over a Micro microchipping in what sense? So like, this idea of people willingly getting um, some kind of microchip within their body that allows for I don't know medical history or allows for surveillance, whether it be okay, I or otherwise. Heard of that, and that's not something. It's that's, not mainstream. <laughs> no, that's not mainstream in Sweden at the moment. So. Good, good. I'm glad you. Yeah, I'm glad we picked on that because there are lots of uh, yeah, lots of people suggesting that you guys are you're having microchipping parties and yeah, everyone's willing to be you know have you know basically become transhuman. I'm like, I'm not That's sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, brilliant. That's the 101 done. Um, you've given you've alluded to this already, um, but let's talk a bit about life in Sweden right here, right now. So. I've read your work on uh, Malcolm Kendrick's site, a great couple of pieces there, and I think that's what uh, led me to you initially. And you spoke about, you know, normality pretty much resuming, but maybe you can speak to that again for a second. Um, maybe talk to how much how much news is being is out there at the moment. Uh, you know, are there you know are there discussions or, or press conferences regularly by your health um, health ministers, etc. And what's the general sense in the community right now so we are coming up towards the end of october my sense is that uh, people are not very worried about covid anymore i think uh, how i i think a good gauge of how worried people are about covid is uh, how many people i see in the emergency room and i, I think I, I talked about the fact that our healthcare system was never overwhelmed during the entire peak, 
from from March to April, some point in May, or I, I mean, I was seeing very few patients in the emergency room. And uh, I mean, uh, a big proportion of the patients coming in during the peak were COVID patients, but in total, there were much fewer patients than than usual. And, and was, was that uh, because you guys advised people not not to go to hospital unless it was absolutely critical? Was it was that a was that a government kind of um, was it was it an outcome of the government's request from the people, or were people well, too scared uh, to go, or something else? Well, I mean, Sweden was Sweden never did a kind of save the NHS campaign like like the UK did. I think uh, uh, it's possible that people were um, were not going because they didn't want to overwhelm the the healthcare system at the point where they thought it might be overwhelmed. I think it, that's probably part of the explanation, and part of the explanation, like you suggest, is probably also that people were afraid that if they went to the emergency room, they would get COVID. Mm. Um, so, uh, so during that period, there was a, a big decline in visits to the emergency room and then things gradually went back to normal over the summer. They were pretty normal. And then, uh, uh a couple of weeks ago, I think there was, a uh, a, a new bout of uh, fear related to the fact that there has been a small increase in cases, uh, uh and and that lasted for a week or two and and that now things are back to normal again so i think what i what i see in the emergency room really mirrors how how frightened people are of covid and now like volumes are back to normal so i don't think people are afraid and when i sit in in public transport or move around in the city it's it's uh, it feels like it did before the pandemic so i think most people aren't afraid of this disease anymore would you say you are totally like 100 percent back to pre-covid times people behaving completely as they were in you know january or and before or do you feel there has been some permanent adjustment to how people conduct themselves in public um i i think in sweden in stockholm people are back to the way they were there have been uh uh increases in the number of cases in in parts of Sweden in Uppsala and in in Malmö recently and I think I I mean I haven't been there personally but I think uh, the Swedish public health authority has has recommended people living in those areas to be more careful and so people probably are uh, I mean I I haven't been there so I can't speak to it but uh, in terms of permanent changes I guess uh, there's been a decrease in in handshaking I mean, mm. uh, before the pandemic, I, I, I shook hands with all my patients and, and I've stopped doing that. And, uh, and so I guess that is maybe a permanent effect of this uh, pandemic that people don't uh, shake hands anymore. But uh, other than that, I can't really think of anything that's different. What, what about in your city centers? Do, do they feel less busy? Do you feel there's generally more people avoiding you know, transport and restaurants and bars and cafes and shops, etc. Um, no, like I said, I think the the city centers are about as packed now as they were before the pandemic. One one other thing I can think of that I think has changed is that people are buying their groceries online uh, to a much larger extent rather than going to physical uh, grocery shops. Um, and and I think that's probably a change that's uh, 
that's uh, going to stick, not because people are afraid of the pandemic, just because people have realized how practical it is to to order your food online and get it delivered rather than having to go and get it physically in a shop. Yeah, it's a bit of a seed change, isn't it? And then you go, hang on a minute, may as well carry this on because it's more convenient. Um, what about what about the news? What about you know government dialogue? Do you do you feel constantly bombarded by COVID related media, and are your uh, officials and ministers constantly? speaking to the public about COVID and, you know, the concerns and asking people to, con- you know, continue to stay vigilant? If you look at the daily newspapers, there, I mean, at the peak, COVID was on the front page daily and uh, it was uh, the main news item. But uh, for months now, it's been kind of more of a peripheral news item. It's, it's, uh, it, I, my feeling is that it's rarely the main article on the front page. It might get some small, more small article inside the newspaper, but it's really not. Uh, it's it's not something that people are putting a lot of uh, uh, attention to. And so, I mean, media don't seem to be that interested in it anymore, which suggests to me that the general public is not that interested in it uh-huh. anymore. I think it's more it's more common for the front page to be some celebrity news. Yeah. If you look at the tabloids, than for it to be about anything to do with COVID. Back to normal then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> trash, trash, trash media. Um, yeah. What about Anders? When's, when's the last time he gave a public address that you're aware of? So I think he's still giving press conferences uh, a couple of times a week. Um, um, I, I think he's doing that and he'll probably keep doing that uh, and, until it's definitively been decided that this is uh, nothing that anyone needs to care about anymore. Okay, but it's, it's not like as if it's, you know, stop what you're doing and watch what Anders has got to say. It's not, you're not at that point anymore. Defin- in the definitely not. Definitely not. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Because we definitely are. Whenever we hear that there's another press conference being done by Boris Johnson and Hancock, etc., I think, you know, the world stops to hear what they have to say at the moment. Okay. Um, masks. are Were they a thing? Are they a thing? Uh, I know that Anders Tegnell thinks they're more symbolic than anything else. Uh, at least that has been the dialogue I've heard from him. Um, mm. Do you see, yeah, what, what would you say the general sentiment is to masks and how prevalent are they as you walk across the towns and cities? It's, um, so there's never been a formal recommendation from the public health authority that people wear masks. And I think that's based on the the fact that the science for masks is weak. It's the fact, the idea that they have any effect on a, population level, if you give them to the general public, I mean, there's no good evidence to support that. Uh, And I think that's the reason they've never recommended them. Um, I I remember in June, the WHO went out and said that the public should start wearing masks. And and I know most countries followed that and and, uh, the Swedish public health authority decided to continue with its prior recommendation that masks should be used in hospitals and, and nursing homes, but not not by the general public. So you um, don't see many people walking the streets or serving the, you in uh, restaurants and I, bars, etc. Definitely not. Uh, at, at the peak, I, I mean, there were 
maybe 10% of people were wearing masks for a while. And now that's gone down. Now it's, my feeling is maybe 1% are wearing masks. So there 1% of the population is choosing to wear masks for whatever reason. Um, Great but, content. But the vast majority aren't. Lovely. Excellent. Okay, that's that's really useful. Is um, I want to talk about testing next, but is there anything else uh, as relates to like the now of Sweden that you, you think is important to let the people know? Um, well, I, I know uh, foreign media have been uh, focusing a lot on uh, the cases and, and um, now in Sweden there's been an increase in, in so-called cases, but uh, it, it doesn't really reflect reality. The, the thing that people need to understand is that, uh, well, first of all, a, a case is not necessarily a case. If you're testing uh, an asymptomatic person and, and that test is positive, they're going to be counted in the statistics as a case. But I mean, in terms of uh, infectious disease and in terms of uh, how doctors have been thinking about diseases, we never, we've never classified someone who doesn't have symptoms as a case just because they have a positive test. So, um, I, and, I, I find uh, that completely, um, inappropriate and manipulative on the public conscience. It's one of my massive bugbears, Sebastian, is hmm. this um, the WHO's case definition of this notifiable disease from the get-go has been, we found a PCR test that works, we've got a couple of nucleic acids that, you know, assays that work. As a result, PCR testing is the gold standard. You need not do anything else. As long as you hmm. get a positive test, you are a case, you are counted and recorded for all the statistics regionally, nationally, and globally. Um, I find that a disgrace that we're in, you know, almost November and there hasn't been reform to that, you know, test as much as you want for God's sake, but can we at least define what is reported to the public and what we manage public policy on based on real cases? I, you express signs and symptoms unique to the disease state and you have a test, maybe we've even a confirmation test that that has been asked for a long time. And there seems to be no interest whatsoever in deploying that at least in the UK. Talk to me about how testing is performed, both the regime and the definition in Sweden, I, I suspect it's similar to the UK. Like mm -hmm. what I've just said, is that pretty much on the money for, for you guys yeah, at the moment? I, I think that's accurate. And, and there are so many reasons why testing is, uh, why why PCR tests are give wildly inaccurate uh, numbers. I mean, uh, well, first of all, the, the false positive rate is, uh, is um, at least 1%. Uh, I mean, and, and in a situation where the disease is rare as it is now, that means that uh, you'll probably get 10 false positives for every true positive. Um, so the vast majority of positives, if you're testing asymptomatic people, are going to be false positives, which is which is why you should never test someone who's asymptomatic. Um, um, and, and the other aspect is that we know now that people can continue to be PCR positive for, for months after they've had an infection. So a positive PCR test doesn't really tell you anything about whether you've got COVID right now or whether you had COVID two months ago. Mm. Um, and, and another thing, I mean, cases, one case is not one, it's not the same thing as one person. If you, if you test someone three times and they're positive, 
each time, then that's three COVID cases in the statistics, but it's only one person. So, I, so that's do, why. I, do you I, do you I, think that Sweden is is not unique in that regard? Then that they are following general standard operating procedure across yeah. most of Europe and most of the world, where case definition as we is as we described, which is yeah. don't have to have symptoms. That you you test asymptomatic people as part of your surveillance program. That um, there isn't confirmation testing after a positive to weed out whether it was a false positive or a weak positive, um, and that there are double counting for those reasons. Do you do you see any kind of um, you guys are on this pedestal for for those that support your kind of approach in many regards? But do you look at your testing regime and say we're doing it better than the rest, or we're basically following along? No, I think Sweden uh, is uh, doing testing pretty much as badly as uh, the rest of the world. And uh, and I mean, we've seen a huge increase in so-called cases in recent weeks, but there's also been a huge increase in testing, which uh, so, uh, I mean, most of this increase in so-called cases just reflects the fact that we're testing much more people. And the more people you test, the more cases you're going to find. One thing I think Sweden is doing better than other countries is that it's focusing more on hospitalizations and deaths, which are the statistics that matter. Because, I mean, the thing we care about is, are people getting really sick? Are they dying? That's what matters. Who, who cares what uh, a PCR test shows? It tells you nothing. It's, it's not... Uh, it's not correlated with any clinical outcome. And I think that's the thing Sweden's doing better than a lot of countries that the Swedish public health authority is focusing on hospitalizations and deaths and not focusing on what's happening with the PCR tests. But nonetheless, um, if you have, and this is my worry for every country, including Sweden, is if you test more, you get more positives for the reasons we've described. Um, and eventually you're going to test enough people that there will be saturation and those people are going to get find their way into hospital at some point in time, not necessarily because of any kind of respiratory disease, but whether it be an accident, whether it be cancer, whether it be in a progression of heart disease, whatever it be. Now, my, under, or no, my, my com, com, um, confirmed understanding in the UK and many countries is that you are counted throughout the COVID statistics, whether you're a case, hospitalization, intensive care patient, or death, um, merely by the fact that you had a positive test within 28 days. Not that that hospitalization, that uh, intensive care bed, and or that death had an expression of the disease. So not only do we have a case of polluting the, the cases, we have a case of polluting the downstream hospitalization data, I believe we are seeing that right now, and that is what's um, allowing us to see an elevated, amplified um, response in this endemic period. Do you? You're currently not seeing that because we know your deaths are still on the floor. We know intensive care use, at least from the statistics, is still incredibly low. But do you, do you not worry that these that the case the case regime is eventually going to bleed into more issues in you know? Um, Overreporting in hospitalization data. Definitely, and and uh, I think that could actually be part of what we're seeing right now. Because, uh, like I said, there has been a small increase in recent weeks in in hospitalizations and in uh, people in ICU with COVID. The the problem is that um, 
well, say someone comes in with respiratory symptoms to the hospital, we'll take a COVID test. And, uh, and uh, if it's positive, we'll say that person has COVID. But I mean, there are hundreds of other viruses that we're not testing for. They might have uh, had COVID two months ago, and now they have symptoms because they have some other respiratory viral infection. Um, but we're only testing for the COVID and we'll find that. We're not testing for the other virus, so we're not going to find that. If they then get sick, end up in the ICU and die, they're going to be characterized as a COVID death when actually they might have died of, of, uh, of, of influenza or, uh, or another coronavirus or rhinovirus. Um, so I think that could definitely be causing, uh, causing a situation where there seem to be more COVID deaths than there really are. And would you say within your practice, that um, if someone comes in with some acute trauma, whether it be an accident or what have you, uh, or they've had a you know a heart attack, but they have tested positive either in the community or when diagnosed through testing in the hospital, would they be characterized as a COVID statistic and potentially a COVID death, uh, even though they don't express any symptoms? Are you, are you aware of that happening currently within either your practice or other practices around the country? Um, I think it's it's possible. Um, that person's definitely going to be counted as a COVID case. Um, say they say they come. I think so. There have been lots of reports during the last months that COVID can cause every symptom there is. COVID can cause strokes. It can cause cause uh, heart attacks and uh, and. Um, I think a lot of, of that is just that people are, they have a, they're coming in with a stroke uh, because they have a stroke, but they also have a positive COVID test because maybe, well, it could be just a pure false positive, or maybe they had COVID a month ago. And, and then the doctors look at that and they think, wow, COVID caused that stroke. So COVID caused the person to die when in fact it's uh, it's a coincidence. I, I think that's probably a big part of the explanation for 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 these uh, exaggerated claims in recent months that COVID can cause pretty much any symptom that exists. Um, it, I'm not sure how how uh, uh, common it is in, in Sweden, but like I said, when when they've been going back through the statistics, only about 15% of the people um, uh, who uh, who supposedly died of COVID had it as as the only cause of death. Most people, uh, COVID was just one among many factors, and, and a significant portion were completely false positives. They actually had a different cause of death, mm. okay. which is why uh, occasionally, like yesterday, the number of deaths attributed to COVID in Sweden it uh, actually decreased by like I don't remember, maybe it was 17 people or something like that. It's because they've gone back through the statistics yeah. and figured out oh, these 17 people, they didn't actually die of COVID. Yeah, we're seeing that over here. There's not many, from what I understand, there's not much coroner action over here at the moment because there's almost you know no appeals process necessarily or inquest for, for, for deaths. Um, but there is definitely some data correction. I see that I follow, I use the data daily. Uh, we run a number of reports and you constantly see, you know, a reduction in certain, you know, days, whether they be weeks or months, um, 
previous. So that does happen. I guess that's just through part of the process of better understanding what happened. Um, I just wanted to touch on uh, your, uh, your unique insight being an A&E physician. You say you have, uh, there was a stage when obviously there were a lot of uh, COVID-related patients coming through the door. What, how would you characterize this disease? I mean, first and foremost, I suspect you don't you don't buy into the hype that you know virus the you know SARS-CoV-2 is a myth, and you know there isn't a virus, and this is all a hoax, right? I'm guessing that's not where you sit. Uh, maybe you can help the listeners understand what it is like to have COVID-19 from your experience having treating those individuals. Well, I, no, I don't think COVID is a hoax or a myth. I think it's uh, it's definitely a real virus. I just think uh, it's nowhere near as serious or deadly as it's been hyped up to be. And I think it's at the end of the day, we're probably going to find that it's not deadlier than than other coronaviruses that are floating around continuously in our population. It's, it's probably going to turn out not to be deadlier than, than the flu. Um, um and well what symptoms do they have i think they have uh, they have cold symptoms sometimes they uh, develop uh, pneumonia um so coughing shortness of breath um i think are the typical covid symptoms just like you would see with other respiratory viruses um and i think a lot of the other things that are attributed to covid are are incidental i don't think they've got to do with with the covid virus actually i remember at the beginning of the pandemic we were uh, well i had a lot of patients with stomach pain or uh, diarrhea and uh, we took a covid test and it was positive and and we would then attribute the diarrhea or the the stomach pain to covid and say well this is a, a covid symptom but now going looking back i think I think the, the the positive COVID test was probably incidental. They probably had uh, a gastroenteritis caused by some other virus, but we never tested for those other viruses. We only test for COVID. So obviously we find COVID and then we... we, we Place or blame uh, it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but of course you, you had, you had a, an increase in ICU and mechanical uh, ventilation bed use. Mm. Um, did did you do you do do you do any intubating? Did were you involved in any of like the, the ICU uh, services, or is that a different department? It's a it's a completely different department. So I just work in the emergency room, and if a patient's that sick that they need ICU treatment, we I basically just move them over to the ICU as quickly as possible, and and a doctor in the ICU takes over. Any um, any um, insight? from your colleagues as to anything that's worth noting um obviously if you're going into icu you're, you're in a pretty bad way and that's universal right i think that just characterizes the fact someone is is not well not well at no. all um, no. but was there any insight you got from your colleagues in icu well i, I mean I, I think covid i i'm not denying that covid can be a serious illness just like uh uh, just like other respiratory viruses that we normally don't think of as deadly, I mean, can cause a serious illness. Influenza kills, uh, the other coronaviruses kill. There have been previous studies that have found that 
that uh, when the other so-called common cold coronaviruses get into nursing homes, they can kill five to 10% of those they infect. Um, there have been studies finding that rhinovirus, which we think of as the most harmless virus that exists, um, uh, can kill five to 10% of frail old people. So, I mean, uh, the thing I think is different about COVID is that it's a new virus. And, and that means that when it came, there was no uh, underlying immunity in the population. And, and so it infected a lot of people over a short period of time. And, and some of those people ended up in the ICU. I think the proportion with other coronaviruses or with rhinovirus or with the flu that then end up uh, in the ICU is probably about the same, but uh, but because we have underlying immunity in the population, we don't see anywhere near the same number of people being infected at the same time. So that's a really really interesting and insightful perspective. Thank you on that, Sebastian. I think it's um it's helpful to put things in context and put you know some relevance. And I think you just did that. Um, you're speaking about flu. We are. I hope tell tell me if I'm wrong, but you know we characterise this period of time really, really the start of September, but definitely in you know from the middle of October we characterise that period as the start of the flu season in the UK. The flu season typically runs you know October to March here. Um, I'm guessing considering your similar latitude, you have a similar uh, endemic resurgence of respiratory, respiratory related diseases between October and March. But could you speak to that? Are you, is that correct regarding how you would characterize your flu season in Sweden? And then two, are you seeing normal patterns? Are you seeing an increase in respiratory related uh, issues coming into your department? Uh, yes, the, uh, Sweden is, uh, I think, uh, similar to England in that sense. And we have a we have a, a season for for the flu and the common cold that uh, stretches through the autumn and winter, and uh, and uh, we see a similar pattern in terms of uh, hospital admissions. Okay, so this year is no different. You, you've seen an uptick in that in those respiratory related uh, patients, uh, but they're not all necessarily being marked up as COVID right now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. All right. Perfect. Um, you spoke about your Nordic neighbors and you spoke about how you had an abnormally uh, soft winter that created a, a larger pool of susceptible people for when this new virus struck the world in you know January time, January, February. Um, is there anything else you would like to say to people that seem really quick to use that as an example to completely dismiss Sweden's progress or decisions as a government and they just go, well, I don't want to hear about Sweden because look at their Nordic neighbours, look at Finland, Norway, Denmark, they saw nothing in comparison, they done things differently, uh, Sweden was rogue and they paid the price for being rogue. Would you how would you characterize the behaviors of your Nordic neighbors? Are they totally dissimilar to the behaviors and decisions of the Swedes? And can you speak to why you think they got a hall pass and effectively quote unquote got away with it? Whereas you guys felt the brunt of COVID. 
Well, I, I think there are multiple different explanations. I think the fact that we had a very soft 2019 is a big part of the explanation. Like I said, there were an unusually large amount of very frail, very old people uh, at the beginning of 2020 who were almost certainly going to die in 2020, regardless of of uh, COVID or not. Um, um, I think there are probably other explanations too. Um, uh, a lot of Swedes, uh, like I said, go skiing in the Alps at a time when when the infection was um, exploding in Italy and and brought the infection back to Sweden in a way that that our neighbors didn't experience. And I think it's also possible that uh, that. Uh, their increased restrictions had some some effect, but uh, I think uh, uh, the main explanation is probably the soft 2019. Um, I, another part of the explanation could be could be that uh, Sweden has a, a bigger dark-skinned population than its neighbors, and we've seen that uh, people with darker skin get affected more severely with COVID than, than people with lighter skin. Probably something to do with vitamin D deficiency and then perhaps um, social economic status and perhaps multi-generational homes. Would I mean, would you attach those kind of reasons as to why that there's this um, disproportionate effect, to, you know, darker skinned? And I think in particular, Somali immigrants, am I right in saying there's a lot of Somali, mm. Somali mm. immigrants in Sweden? That's that's correct. Um, I think it's it's more vitamin D than uh, than uh, than social factors. I mean, like I I saw this article that uh, that in the UK, twenty seven of twenty nine doctors who who died of COVID were dark skinned. So I mean, that kind of shows that it's not a socioeconomic issue to me, and. Uh, there have been a, a lot of studies showing that uh, people with low vitamin D levels do much worse with COVID. And there's also been a randomized controlled trial that showed that if you give people high doses of vitamin D, they do much better uh, uh, with COVID. So I think my guess is that the main explanation is low vitamin D levels in the dark skinned population. Okay. What about care homes? Um, there, there were talk that your care home structure uh, is perhaps different from your Nordic neighbors. Um, the understanding I had was larger care homes, um, more of them. And as such, the community spread within that cohort of people perhaps was a greater factor than your neighbors. I'm not quite sure if, if that has any weight or not. Can you speak to that as to whether you think care home structures are different between the um, countries? I, I actually don't know how um, whether their care homes are bigger or smaller or or um, organized in a different way. I mean, we know that a big proportion of the people who died or supposedly died of COVID uh, died in care homes. And uh, I think one thing that's important to understand about Swedish care homes is that um, or nursing homes, as you call them in the UK, is that um, people don't move out of their old homes and into the care homes until they're they're very much at the end of their life. Um, Twenty percent of people moving into care homes are dead within one month. Oh, wow. uh, uh, Fifty percent are dead within six months. So I mean, 
the, the people who move into care homes in Sweden are people with a very, very short life expectancy um, who are who are most of the time going to be dead within a year, um, uh, regardless of That's- anything. That that is interesting. I, you know, I don't know the statistics here in the UK to know if that is if that mirrors here. I, I, I suspect it isn't that dissimilar. But what we do have is, as you say, we do have quite a few nursing homes or, or kind of early stage care homes, which are you know these individuals have lost a partner. Um, they're they're struggling to look after themselves. They may have onset of some form of di- dementia, and as a result, you know they are they they're not self sufficient. And as a result, those individuals may find their way into care homes and then perhaps even nursing homes where they need hospitalized type care. Uh, and they can live quite some time, you know, 10, 15 years perhaps. You know, no, that's not normal, but that definitely can happen here in the UK. And of course, a huge cost to uh, the families. Is that not what you, you think happens as much in Sweden? No, Sweden's quite uh, different in that... Um the Swedish state has decided to try to keep people in their own homes for as long as uh, humanly possible, which means that um, you only really get moved into a care home if if it's not possible for you to stay in your own home, even with people coming to check on you and help you eight times a day. So the service is, is more built to, you know, care at your home exactly so you, home. exactly so you you uh, uh, as a person gets frailer and frailer and is is becomes less and less independent you push up the number of times uh, uh, carers come to your home and you push it up to eight times a day and if when they're coming eight times a day things still aren't working then at that point you get moved into a care home lovely thank you for that clarification all right, Sebastian, we are almost done. I know I've been hitting you over the head with so many questions, um, but these are questions that we've, um, there's just been lots of Chinese whispers about. So thank you so much for bringing that clarity. There's a couple more questions and we, we will call it a day. Um, let's talk about effective herd immunity. So of course, herd immunity is a very dirty word right now. I don't know why, but we're not allowed to say it without being considered a conspiracy theorist, even though vaccines and really, the herd immunity terminology is really driven through vaccine development and vaccine messaging. That that aside, um, it was characterized here in the UK and I think across most of the, the world that Sweden were going for a quote-unquote herd immunity approach. Now, I've heard Anders Tegnell say there's no such thing. We weren't going for a herd immunity approach, but we accepted herd immunity was a, an inevitable outcome. So how could we... How, how could we, you know, maybe maybe speed that along whilst caring for our people? I don't know whether I've I've said that correct. Feel free to, you know, challenge that or, or correct it. But in your opinion, do you think herd immunity was an accepted outcome or quote unquote some type of approach across the Swedish population? And what do you think to whether you guys have acquired? an effective herd immunity or, or you've hit the threshold where this has now become endemic anything you can speak to regarding population immunity well i mean first of all i think this whole kind of discussion about the herd immunity strategy is is extremely weird because every country in the world has a herd immunity strategy there there i mean covid is 
is only really going to end when we when when every country has herd immunity one way or another and it's, so i mean uh, there are different ways you can reach herd immunity. You can either reach it by letting it, the disease spread in the population, or you can uh, reach it by vaccinating everyone. But uh, I mean, herd immunity is going to be the end result for every country in the world, regardless of what they do. Because I, I mean, I think everyone agrees that this is a virus that we're not going to eradicate. It's going to be with us now for probably for as long as humans continue to exist. And and uh, so the only effective long-term strategy is, is herd immunity, which, which you, like I said, either you achieve it by letting the disease spread until enough people have become infected, or you achieve it by vaccinating enough people. Um, and um, well, personally, I, I think Sweden has achieved herd immunity. I, I don't think there's any other reasonable way to interpret the fact that we had a, a huge spike in, in the spring and then we've had a gradual decline and then uh, numbers of uh, deaths have just stayed at a very low level for months on end. I, I personally, I can't see any other reasonable explanation other than that there is sufficient immunity in the population now to contain the spread of the virus. and. Um, uh, there has been a small increase in in recent in the last month or so in hospitalizations, but I think, I mean, it's it's not an exponential increase like you see with the with the pandemic. It's a slow, gradual increase, which which to me is much more of a, much more suggestive of a seasonal effect. That it, most likely COVID, just like the 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 common cold coronavirus is is a, uh, has a seasonal pattern, so it. Uh, it uh, decreases in summer and it increases in 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 autumn and uh, winter and i think that's what we're seeing at the moment in in sweden uh, uh, a seasonal effect yeah so you're you're describing endemic equilibrium yeah you believe exactly. you are there now exactly i think we're at the point of endemic equilibrium that's a good good term to describe it okay and are you familiar with any of the the science, the, the the studies regarding um, seroprevalence, antibody kind of measurement, and or T cell um, measurement, can you speak to that? Obviously, as a physician and someone closer to the medical industry and community than than I, as to whether what 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 is what is the surveillance of the Swedish population as it relates to those two factors of the immune system, the antibody production and you know t-cell response anything to say so um the swedish population was surveyed in um about four months ago by the swedish public health authority and, and they checked the antibody prevalence and uh, i think they reached the conclusion that um like 17 percent or so in stockholm had antibodies and seven percent or something like that had antibodies in the general population um and and um so that data is four months old no one knows how many people have antibodies in sweden right now uh there probably was a less right um, would, would you not say that there'll be a wane in effect of antibodies I, as as you you pass the infection at least in the um, 
Definitely. The, I mean, if you look at an individual, they have most antibodies towards the end of the infection, and then uh, uh, antibodies will gradually wane. Um, and I guess uh, what people don't understand is that that that, that is natural and, and really has nothing. The, the number of antibodies in the bloodstream doesn't really tell you anything about whether you still have immunity to an infection or not, because um, because well, so what happens when you get an infection is uh, first the the you have this immediate immune response and then you have a delayed immune response which evolve involves T cells and B cells. Uh, B cells are the cells that produce antibodies. Um, T cells they coordinate the immune system and they also go around telling virus infected cells to commit suicide to to kind of contain the spread of the infection. Um, and um, and so what happens is that you'll have active immune cells, active T cells, active B cells, and some of those cells will become memory cells. Both you'll have both memory T cells and memory B cells, and these are inactive, uh, kind of dormant cells that just sit in the immune system and wait for the for the infection to come back. And 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 dormant B cells are not producing antibodies. So uh, if you're just measuring the level of antibodies in the bloodstream, you're not going to detect them, but they're still there. And the moment you get uh, your body is exposed to the virus again, they will rapidly start multiplying, producing lots of clones, which will start start producing large numbers of antibodies, and and you will most likely uh, fight off the infection without ever knowing that you've become reinfected. Thank you for making that clear to our listeners. <laughs> it's such a profound aspect, which I know is 101 to you, but for, for many of the population, uh, we have a very simplistic view that antibodies are ever present and the measurement is the definitive measurement as to population, in, 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 the, the population that were infected. And I, I know that's a complete mis misnomer. Uh, it is misleading and understanding that antibodies will wane, but that does not mean that we're losing memory, I think is incredibly important. But equally important, I think, is that antibodies are like a last line of defense in the immune system. And before that is T-cell production. Um, and T-cell... T cell anti uh, sorry um, T cells generally um, have been identified as a likely um, defense against coronavirus and the prevalence of those T cells specific to coronavirus is pretty high in the testing that has been done across many different studies. Can you talk to that at all? Um, whether it's whether a Swedish slant or otherwise as to you know the prevalence of T cells specific to coronavirus? Well, so the media discussion about the immune system is entirely focused on antibodies. And I think the main reason for that is that antibodies are what we measure. And, and there's a very simple explanation for why we measure antibodies. It's because it's easy and uh, cheap and uh, it's more expensive to measure T cells so that's really something that's only done in in research. It's not done in clinical practice. Um, 
Um, and but the thing that uh, I guess people need to understand is that uh, antibodies are are not in any way a primary defense against viruses. They're they're primarily a defense against bacteria and parasites. And and that there's a very recent, very uh, reasonable and easy explanation for this. It's because antibodies are big molecules. They can't cross the cell membrane. They can't enter cells. And viruses are intracellular parasites, right? So, so antibodies can't do anything about viruses that are that have infected cell. cells and yeah. that are re replicating inside a cell. For that, you need a, another part of the immune system, and that is the 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 CD8 plus T cells, the T killer cells, uh, which are which are specifically designed to to search out cells that have been infected by viruses they they tell these cells to shut down their machinery to to commit suicide in a way that traps the 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 virus particles inside the cell and and it's it, this is really a much more central defense against viruses than antibodies antibodies can hold the line but they can't really eradicate an infection for that you need the t cells Thank you for that. Again, fantastic explanation. And are you aware of the the, the studies that are coming out suggesting um, cross-reactive immunity mm. and how when these T-cell tests are performed, we're finding quite high prevalence of the relevant T-cells against um, SARS or, or, you know, the general coronaviruses? Mm. Well, so... I guess most people know by now that apart from COVID, there are four other coronaviruses that float around continuously in our population, causing a, a low levels of infection. And um, and these viruses are quite similar to COVID, and uh, and uh, it's it's perfectly possible that um, that a lot of people, even before COVID showed up, uh, had some measure of built-in immunity just because. They had T cells that were specific uh, to these other coronaviruses, but that, uh, but since COVID is so similar, they were also able to react to COVID and cause a, a more rapid uh, immune response than you would than you would have if you were completely naive to to um, to coronaviruses. Um, really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think um, this year, if anything else, through lots of misinformation and misdirection but nonetheless throughout this journey i think everyone's getting up leveled uh, at the you know at kind of base level of consciousness as to what the immune system is how it functions how important it is to look after it through good metabolic health and you know we're having these conversations you know no one would be interested in this conversation sebastian a year ago but now <laughs> everyone is and that's fantastic so i think the world is going to up level their understanding of how beautiful and amazing and yet complex our body is and it just does it without even thinking uh, so thank you for that explanation let's close on this let's close on do you have any concerns sebastian so obviously i'm not going to characterize it this way but perhaps there's a sense of pride or patriotism or support for the country that you live in and you know the sensible measures that have been taken perhaps you could do things differently if you rewound the clock but for the most part i get a sense of we've, we've taken a sensible science driven approach to this are there any concerns that i don't know whether it be are there 
concerns about public health worsening because of the either the restrictions or the you know the worst is still to come. Maybe are there concerns that your government might U-turn and go from being sensible and rational to being uh, politically forced into a corner, whether it be through the WHO pressure or through copycatting other countries that are now locking down, like France and Germany have just announced a lockdown yesterday, um, or, or the, the incessant vaccine push is going to have to drive a different narrative into your community. I've thrown a lot at you, but I'm trying to get a sense as to whether you are worried that whilst you sit in a, a relatively comfortable place right now, that there are certain things politically or public health related that may mean there are some issues ahead. Um, how would you characterize your your worry, if any? Well, I guess my main concern is is all the indirect effects of COVID and, and we have those in Sweden, uh, even though we haven't done a hard lockdown for, I mean, for example, uh, for, for half of this year, all elective surgeries were canceled. Um, a lot of uh, cancer surgeries were postponed. Um, a lot of normal routine healthcare was canceled or postponed. And I think we're going to see the consequences of that in, in in the coming years and and also the fact that people were afraid to to seek a help uh, uh, for health problems because they were afraid to be infected with covid has probably also resulted in in uh, in in a de- in a delay in care that's that's uh, harming people and i mean that exists in sweden but i think it exists uh, to a much bigger extent in in other countries that have done hard lockdowns and that are continuing to do hard lockdowns, um, and, and I mean that's not even considering the the negative psychological effects. And the Swedish uh, government dis- or the public health authority decided a week ago to stop recommendation recommending isolation for for people 70 plus and and people who are in risk groups, and this is because. There's been evidence coming out showing that uh, this has significant psychological harms, and and they they decided that the the negative psychological and physical effects on people of recommending isolation are probably bigger than than any benefits gained in terms of decreasing the risk of COVID. So I mean, there's there hasn't barely been any discussion at all in the media of what the all the negative indirect effects of COVID are. And, and I, I think that's something that we're going to need to start talking more and more about. And, and and it's really something that countries should have been weighing into their decision making at the start of this pandemic, uh, uh, when they started considering lockdowns. And, and and I think this that's an issue that becomes more and more acute, kind of with every passing day. Yeah, no, it's interesting to hear that you guys feel the same way as we do. Um, I guess we have the we attach this negatively and cynically to the actions of our government, which have been very draconian and authoritarian in nature. Um, not not so much elective and voluntary, but more mandated with fines and you know police and uh, all sorts of weird authoritarian dystopian nonsense. Quite frankly, in our country, and it's worsening by the day. Um, but to hear that you feel the same way, but you know the, the measures were different, but the outcomes are going to perhaps be similar is is, is very interesting, and I too am worried about that. Um, thank you so much for your time, 
Sebastian. It's been a true pleasure. I hear that you probably need to get back to your kids. So I'm <laughs> let you uh, take care of that. Um, any closing thoughts? Obviously, this wasn't supposed to be, look how great we are and how marvelous we are and look at the rest of the world, they're fucked. I know that wasn't your intent. It wasn't my intent. Um, but as you ponder on the next next six months and you think about countries such as the UK and France and Spain and Germany, um, do you... What, what would your message be to us? I mean, I know you're not a politician and your influence is negligible, but do you worry for us? Do you worry that we, we've, you know, we've, we've made our bed and we're going to have to lay in it? Or, or do you think there is a chance that, you know, perhaps with a change of government or a change of government tack, tact, we could do things differently? We could follow the science, maybe? What, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think we're a lost cause or do you think there's still hope? Well, I mean, I don't think it's it's ever too late to uh, to start following the science. Uh, I mean, uh, each passing day with uh, with uh, lockdowns that are not based in any kind of science it does uh, additional damage, and I mean that could really be halted uh, at any point, and it's going to have beneficial effects. So I guess it's it's like smoking. I mean, you can't do anything about the damage is already been done, but but you can do something about the future and uh, and uh, avoid additional damage. And um, I, I just think countries, there should be a national conversation in every country about not just about the virus. And I mean, th like, this is a virus that kills a tiny fraction of the people who are dying every day. Like in Sweden at the moment, I think there are three people dying of COVID per day. And, and there are 250 people dying of other things. It, it makes so little sense to be focusing all conversation on one tiny disease that's responsible for a tiny fraction of all the, the morbidity and mortality in a country. I mean, countries should really be having a, a, a conversation about about the whole, what what are I mean? There are much bigger killers than COVID at the moment. Why why are we just talking about COVID? We need to talk about everything. We need to talk about well, if we're taking kids out of school, what how does that affect their health and and their future, and and uh, and all these negative costs and harms need to be weighed into any decisions that are made uh, in relation to COVID. Yeah, and hopefully the politics will get out of the way and let science uh, resume because I do feel we have we have forgotten how to do science this year and um, I do believe that there is um, unfortunately many establishment scientists are manipulated in one way shape or form by uh, effectively supporting political objectives and I really feel that that is what we're seeing in the UK massively so um, and it's just a shame that science has been polluted and its reputation has kind of gone down the toilet at least in this country because we we see people effectively as shills or you know supporting a narrative that doesn't really hold water if you speak to someone that doesn't have anything to lose and are just scientifically pure and are willing to have a debate but um, somehow we've lost that and hopefully through the next six months whether it be a change of leadership or a change of tact we were we'll find a way towards 
more um, pragmatism and honesty and debate because I think that's what we need. Thank you so much for bringing it to the Adaptation Mics today, Sebastian. Where can people find you and your work and connect with you online? Um, well, I, I guess the best place is to go to my website, which is my name, SebastianRushworth.com. Um, I've written a lot of articles about COVID, kind of discussing the things we've been talking about. So um, I think that's probably the best place place for people to go. Fantastic. And they can they can also find me on Twitter, I guess. Okay, okay. And you you don't offer any kind of online services or anything like that. Yeah, you're busy enough in your A and E department. Yeah. I'm busy enough. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you for all that you do from a public health perspective. Thank you for being a leader in these troubling times. Thank you for speaking up um, and being willing to talk to people across the pond and help our, us with our neuroticism. Uh, thank you for this conversation. I hope we keep in touch. And um, yeah, please continue to keep speaking the truth because more and more people need to hear it. Thank you, Steve. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find the episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.